0: Visit iConnections.io. So typically I'd start this podcast by referencing some 1960s, 1970s song. But as I walked in today, Danny said, let's not do the music thing today. I got the title. Uh So I'm like, fine. But if I were to do that, in 1975, Danny and Dan, and by the way, Peter, Paul Simon released an album still crazy after all these years. The song Slip Sliding Away was supposed to be on it, but he didn't put it on, and it was released as a single in 1977. By the way, you are listening to the On The Tape podcast. I'm Guy Adami, always joined by Dan Nathan and Danny Moses. And today we're joined for the entire podcast, Peter Bookvar, Chief Investment Officer, Bleakly Financial Group, and the editor of The Book Report. And if you don't read the book report, you're doing it wrong. Anyway, the lyrics of Slip Sliding Away. And think about this for a second. Slip
1: sliding away.
0: They do that, right? It's like a little... They do. Okay. Slip sliding away. But here's the important part. You know, the nearer to destination, the more you slip slide away. So here we are. We're near the destination. We've gotten rates where we wanted them to go. But we continue to slip slide away, Danny Moses. We're slip sliding away. And
1: that's not going to be the title of the show because apparently you have something better. The reason that I was singing another song when I came in, which I don't know why I was singing, was Elton John, I'm Still Standing, which now I remember why. Because an hour ago, I asked Dan if he had ever seen the movie Tommy, to which he said no. To which I said, how is that possible? And I said, you got Jack Nicholson and Margaret. And I go, and you got to see Elton John's character playing the pinball. Mm -hmm. And I started thinking and through all of this, and I said this two weeks ago. Right. I think we would not see the market make new highs. But I have something else to talk about that may lead to the title of the show. Okay, and before you do that, we have some housekeeping items, Dan Nathan. First and
2: foremost, welcome Peter I to said the hi pod. to Peter. I know we welcomed him here. And I want to say one thing. I want to say one thing. Guy and I have said this, I think, on the pod. We've been doing it now for almost three years, right. okay? One of the consistent themes about a lot of our guests is like how fortunate you and I have been to meet so many brilliant people. What about people. me? I am not I've been fortunate? We met you you on the show on Fast Money. You're part oh. of this little thing that I'm talking uh, about here. You're one of the people I've been, been met. fortunate enough to I meet. People. I got to know Peter through CNBC. He's been a contributor for many years. Guy, do you know that he started doing hits on CNBC in the late 90s
3: here? And we've become good friends with Peter. He's been on our pods a lot over the last few years. Peter, thank you for coming back. It's great to be here. I've been really looking forward to this, I have to say. And happy 200. It's
0: great. And Peter is a fan of our work. It's always shocking to me. It's high praise when somebody you have the utmost respect for actually listens and enjoys the content you put out. Peter Bookvar is one of them, And
2: he's days. also a great friend
1: because he's not just a, a, an on-the-tape head. He's also no, a I computer know what head. He he's also market call, like Market
2: calls, So, no, so we appreciate
1: You know what we love or I love is people that have passion about the markets. And you have passion and it comes out. And I read your stuff to prepare for this show. I read your stuff every day. It helps me prepare. It does. Thanks. And when you walked in here. And I'll get to how I'm going to get to the title in a minute. I get how you remain objective in what you write, because I know how you feel about the markets, but you really try to find the positive. So I try to take your lead and find things are positive, which sometimes I can only find in your note, because I don't search those things out from time yeah, to time. Yeah, so
2: day. all right, real quickly, a little housekeeping. Okay, so Guy just mentioned the book report. We're not bullshitting here. It's one of my first reads every morning. And not only is it one of the first, you are doing a detailed analysis of some of the biggest macro headlines in real time prior to most publications getting out. So check out P. Peter's book report, it's fabulous. And the other thing is, we had a very busy week. It's probably why my voice sounds like this. We had Dan Niles of Satori Fund on OK Computer. We had an hour conversation, he and I, about just his thoughts on AI, some of the shiniest objects in the tech space, how actually he's thinking about things away from tech. So check that out. That was in OK Computer. Please follow that in the podcast store, people. That is going to be leaving the On The Tape feed very soon. And we also had a great pod. You and I, what do we call it? Friends of the pod here? Friends of the pod. Yeah, we had Karen founders friends of the pod guy and i were talking to karen feinerman about her new podcast how she does it so check that out in your favorite podcast stores but that pod dropped yesterday and we had Stuart sop and joe marchese Stuart is the ceo co-founder of current and joe marchese who is the build partner and founder at human venture so great conversations on all the pods okay peter we had you on fast money i think it was on monday or tuesday we were talking about a lot of things that if you're just a johnny come lately about a lot of these issues guy's been talking about the bond market. Danny's Been talking about yield curve control, that sort of thing. You've been talking about this stuff in the book report. You've been writing about it for months and months. This is not new to you. Where are we right now? Set the stage for us. You were really fired up to do this pod. Why are you so fired up right now?
3: So it's been interesting. The market has been getting comfortable with this disinflation story, which is true. Inflation rate of change is definitely slowing. And that leads into, okay, the Fed's almost done. Therefore, there's this all clear. And what we have seen, of course, and I think triggered by the Bank of Japan move, and essentially widening yield curve control, is all of a sudden, out of nowhere, the 10-year yield makes the spike. And okay, that changes this whole rate story where, yeah, the Fed's almost done, now we have a but. The but is this rise now in long-term interest rates. Across the curve, we have higher interest rates. And I laugh when I hear people say, oh yeah, when I bought a house in 1979, I had a 17% mortgage rate. The value of that home relative to one's income was much lower it is much higher today. The debt levels are much higher today. So you take a lot of debt and you multiply it by a rising interest rate that equals a lot of dollars. So you don't need a high interest rate to make things matter. You need just a much higher interest rate. And I think what is most unusual and pronounced and pernicious about this is that This rise in rates comes after 15 years of essentially zero. So it literally came out of nowhere in in the sense of how it's impacting people, but it doesn't affect everyone all at the same time. So the Fed starts raising rates in March 2022. If I'm a business that didn't have debt, where I had a commercial real estate property that didn't have a loan coming due until November 2023, I'd say, okay, Fed's raising rates. I don't have to worry just yet. It's not going to affect me just yet. But here we are in August 2023, that person is scrambling, they're doing cap calls because the bank is saying let's get ready for this and also you hear about the recession no recession soft landing hard landing it's like people think that a recession is an event just comes out of nowhere boom you have one where what we're seeing now is this is something that's gonna be more drawn out because every day every week every month somebody is getting caught in this dragnet of higher rates because somebody's business loan is coming due. Now, if you have floating rate, you're already getting impacted. But those that have termed out, somebody's getting impacted. And even if you're a household that had an adjustable rate mortgage, that may be coming due. If you had a seven-year arm and this is year seven, or if you have credit card debt or whatever, when there's 22% interest rates on a credit card, not everyone is paying off their monthly bills in full. So I'm more worried about, and I've said this before in my notes, is that more of a death by a thousand cuts Situation, And one last point I want to make is that a big swing factor on where this economy goes is how does the stock market eventually react to this persistent rise in rates and eventual impact to the economy? Because it's the higher end consumer, the higher income consumer that is really carrying the load here. Particularly relative to the lower income, where you heard every retailer from high end to low end saying our customers are prioritizing spend and buying more food and drug and health-related stuff rather than electronics and jewelry. What happens to consumer spending if the S&P 500 goes to 3,000? I'm not saying it does go there, but that in itself can have a notable outsized impact on the economy.
1: In 2007 and 8, the same thing. I'm not comparing the two situations from a macro perspective. From a behavior perspective of the consumer, the high-end consumer wasn't the one getting a hit. They didn't have the 228s and the 320s. They didn't have negative equity in their homes. It, where are the money managers? I always say this, they're in Boston and New York for the most part, right? And so as soon as it became evident to them from a behavior perspective, all of a sudden, their vantage point changed and they're the ones managing the money. It's almost as, potentially as simple as that. I've talked about that, but let me get to something. Ready, guy? Ivan Pavlov. Ah, he's a guy with a dog. He's the guy with the dog. <laughs> it's and interesting, dogs. Dan, in- interesting that Pavlov actually created this Pavlovian thing, which I'll get to in a second, by studying digestive issues and how the chemicals in the brain. So, so yeah. really, I think for you, Pavlov, in general, yeah. GLP-1. exactly. And listen, he tortured dogs, so I'm not I'm not praising this guy or what he did. But what have we been in for the last 15 years Is a Pavlovian experiment? Central banks will print and they will bail you out. What you just described, Peter, is when is it gonna matter when you people lose faith and the banks, central banks, are losing the ability to do it. Yes, can you inject money because banks fail and you can do it that way a little bit secretively? Sure. When you start losing faith of what we saw Bank of England last year, you can't print your way out because it will exacerbate inflation. I believe what we're seeing right now, again, people are trying to, well, why would global rates be going up? It's supply and demand. Mm-hmm. And if you cannot print money anymore to to bail yourself out, which I don't think you can given the debt loads, which you're talking about, what's the other reason to go chase the market, right? So this Pavlovian thing of like, where are the central banks? Where are the central banks? I was texting with a good friend of mine, James Aiken, who writes a, a great letter, notes from a small island. And I said to him, I go, we can't print our way out. The Pavlovian 15-year experiment works on a dog, but not on a bear. Which I think describes where we are. So last thing, I'm going to bring it into the title, is The Crazy Ivan. Remember the movie? Of course right? I do. Okay. Hunt for Red October. Exactly. So Russians and Crazy Hunt for Red October. Could be October. Remember when it says when they hunt the other Russian subs, Russian sub, he goes, you killed us, you arrogant ass. Right. You, well, That's the yes. global central banks. That's exactly You right. killed us, you arrogant ass. That's exactly what's going to happen. But anyway, back to you, Peter, in terms of the stuff that you're looking at. And- you're tracking on a daily basis, as Dan mentioned, doing a ton of work. I feel like you have 10 people sitting there working with you, but for some reason, I think it might be just you. Okay. People want to draw pros, cons, everything going on, put together this puzzle mosaic that's going on, right? There are still glimpses. Economy's, quote, doing fine. What is the most bullish things you're seeing right now? We are know what the bear is saying. What are the most bullish things you're seeing to give you hope that we will potentially have some form of a soft landing?
3: So, so it is important to slice and dice the economy. People make these, like, Broad brush statements: economy is good, economy is not good, recession, no recession. Manufacturing is in a recession. I'll get to the positives in a second. That that's pretty much clear, and that is because of obviously everyone spent money on goods. As we know, there was massive inventory stocking, and now we have this destocking. The question is when does that destocking sort of run its course, and then retailers and others can start building again. So that's actually the potential for a positive: is that the inventory destocking that we've been seeing even just plateaus and creates sort of a bottom in manufacturing. So that is a potential positive. Obviously, retail, we talked about the higher-end consumer spending money, as we know. But when you hear about all these retailers, like to me, the the, the two to three weeks of retail earnings are the most telling to what is going on. Not the BLS report that we saw and everyone got excited. So yeah, retail sellers are great. First of all, 25% of that number is actually in hand. 75% is estimated. But when you continuously hear about consumers looking for value, there are people that are making more than $100,000 that are shopping in my store, like Walmart says. The use of the word choiceful, which Walmart used for the second quarter in a row, which is not a word that I don't think we really use, but was somewhat interesting about how consumers are looking at their spend. That tells you that the economy is in a fragile state because while the rate of change in inflation is slowing, the cumulative impact of the last couple of years is notable. The CPI is up almost 20% in three years. That is a cost of living shock. and yes, wages have gone up to an extent, but it's still a jolt-to-ones sort of system that impacts retail. Then you talk about capital spending. The problem with capital spending is the big companies can afford to spend, but with earnings now declining, with cash flows now shrinking, it's the excess cash flow which companies use to invest in their business. There are some potential bright spots that we're currently in the labor market, obviously, with the unemployment rate low, but they're, they're, they're holes. And we, we need to look at the rate of change. The rate of change on initial jobs claims is up. It's been a stair step, but it's up. The rate of change with continuing claims is up. The rate of change in terms of the monthly job growth within the BLS data is softer. And for the third quarter in a row, people are ignoring what ZipRecruiter said. And ZipRecruiter is probably the number one online job site you can have, with Indeed being another top one. And for the third quarter in a row, they're talking about less employers are using us. They're looking for less people. And I believe, when we look back over the past year when the BLS has their final revision, a lot of the birth-death model ads in their jobs numbers are going to disappear, and ZipRecruiter would have been right in talking about the slowdown. Because when you think about, you're a CEO. If I'm in the leisure sector, you did a a ton of hiring over the last couple years, and it was very difficult to sort of restock your staff after COVID. But now you're seeing, okay, the consumer is acting a little differently. Let me take a step back and put a timeout on my hiring. Manufacturing, you're in a recession. You're not hiring. It's just natural for an employer to just say, you know what? I don't want to take on all these extra costs when my visibility is very limited. Hold on. I
1: I was asking for stuff that was positive, but I well, want to no, say- no, no, I said
3: the consumer. No, no, I was yeah. going to say, but let me the just say- The consumer.
1: Those things, but ex- extrapolate that to stock prices and they may not make sense. Now, there's, we and I were walking in- Well, and this I'm like,
3: rally makes perfect sense to me. It was, I don't want to miss the Fed has done rally. The market bottomed within days of when the Fed finished their last 75 basis point rate high. Because everyone said, that's the fourth one in a row, 75. They're going to start toning it down. I want to get ahead of that. Then of course you throw in AI and whatever, but to me it was because the dollar topped out within days of that. Also,
1: it's a, it's been the driver. If you take Fed fund futures and you literally track it on the S and P, it gets complete... back to Pavlov. Correct. It's it, correct. It's very Pavlovian guy. It's interesting, and
0: I've said this: the health of the U.S. consumer—they are fighting inflation by adding to their debt load. So there's no underestimating now the credit card debt north of a trillion. I could rattle off all these different statistics. The reality is when you hear Brian Moynihan talk about the health of the U.S. consumer, and I'm sure he's listening, he's full of shit and he knows it, or he doesn't know it either one is bad. Because I'll tell you, and as you said earlier, U.S. consumer will always spend, regardless of whether or not they should, they stop spending when something happens. And typically that something is a precipitous decline in the stock market. You mentioned levels. Dan and I talk about it all the time. October 2018, into Christmas Eve of that year, the market went down 19.9% in a straight line. Consumer spending stopped on a dime. So as long as the market does okay, or even muddles along, consumers will spend money. It's when something happens in the market that They get worried.
3: Absolutely. Oh, here's another positive. Speaking of the high end, negatively impacted by the stock market is higher end people that have savings are getting five percent now.
1: Right. They even have a mortgage. It's at two and a half. And if they, So we're talking
3: about it adds up to a lot of money. You're talking about more than ten trillion dollars in savings between money markets, checking savings. Now, not all of that goes and is going to get the five percent because some of that's going to stay in checking accounts, whatever. There's a lot of beneficiaries of this higher rate environment. Now, with Brian Moynihan, I think one of his problems was that the last couple years he would talk in nominal terms. He would say our credit card numbers were up 6%, 7%. Right. And he was just talking in nominal terms.
2: What's interesting though, Peter, and again, it's I love that you answered the question and identified some positives, a whole slew of negatives. Let's separate the economy because I think we can all agree right now, yeah, things have decelerated. We also had like just a crazy amount of monetary and fiscal stimulus and just really probably very easy conditions. And 2022 worked off a lot of the excesses in the financial markets, if you will. But a lot of folks were the most bearish when the stock market was its, at its lows in Q4 of last year. And then we get what we had here you see what I did there, this week, okay? Like, like when you think about it, okay? And it's the exact opposite almost of what happened in 2022 a little bit. Can we separate the fact that I think we can all agree at the moment, despite what Guy just said about the consumer, that we know that the savings rates are being drawn down. We know that delinquencies are at pre-pandemic levels on credit cards, right? We know that consumer credit is going through the roof. Those would be a precursor to a weaker consumer in the future, given any sort of headwind. But it's not happening with unemployment where it is right now, despite what zipper recruiter is saying. And so I wonder if one of these other very very odd situations that we're trying, and it may take us years to figure out, this deglobalization, reshoring, all of that is really inflationary at a time where immigration policy is not helping the cause as it relates to all that. So maybe the consumer is going to be in a really interesting spot for years now where we can actually have sub 4% unemployment and we can have wage growth and we can have, I don't know, is that is there a scenario? My my disconnect is that the stock market discounts none of the worst case scenarios. It d- doesn't even discount any of the like kind of base case scenarios that are mediocre for the economy.
3: So you bring up some great points because there are situations where you can have a low unemployment rate and still have a recession. And first of all, the other positive and when I say positive, right, that's I'm that's enough with your about, positives. No, no okay. this is the last yeah. one. In terms, okay. of, the, in terms yeah. of GDP, okay. I'm specifying GDP yeah. is obviously all the government spending on the infrastructure. How about infrastructure debt interest
1: costs as a percentage of GDP? Sorry,
3: please yes. continue. Yes, yeah. right, that's why I defined as GDP. Now, <laughs> yeah. obviously, there's a cost because financing the IRA and infrastructure is now costing more because of the rise in interest rates. So here's a scenario where you have a low unemployment rate, but you have falling real wages. The consumer has a job- but all they're doing is paying for their essentials. And I can have a job, but if I just decide, you know what, I'm, I'm canceling my vacations this year because I need to play it safe, the economy can go into recession. The German economy, take them as an example, they consistently have a low unemployment rate because they have these furlough programs. They went into recession. They haven't grown, but with a low unemployment rate. So there are scenarios where you get that deceleration. Now, the thing with the unemployment rate is getting back to you're in the seat of a CEO, is, okay, my business starts to slow. Let me slow down the hiring. Let me cut some costs and wait to see how things go. Then three months go by, business is not getting better, and it's ticking down. And then all of a sudden, you have to start making decisions. My profit margins are falling, sales are falling. Then I may start laying off people. And then that's when it starts to, I don't want to use the word cascade, but that's when the unemployment rate starts to tick up. Whether it cascades from that or not, we don't know yet. But I think we're going to reach a point where companies are going to have to make that decision of Now, we know in tech, they made that decision because they overhired, so they had no choice but to make that decision, but what happened in tech can easily happen in other parts of the economy, particularly in travel and leisure. What happens if we did all the revenge travel, and now people say, wow, I just had the vacation of my life. I can't afford to spend another 10 grand on a family vacation next year.
1: And It's the last thing that CEOs want to signal to their employees themselves, if they that's the last thing that they want to do. And I'll say, if this is the opposite of losing your job, it's making more money by hitting margins is UPS settled, right, in this contract, not good for their margins. They'll probably pass it on to the consumer, which we pay for packages will be inflationary. The UAW, United Auto Workers, is about to go on strike as well. That's 150,000 people. It's GM, it's Ford, whatever the new name of Chrysler is, Stellaris, or whatever the thing And is. the
3: thousands of suppliers that are going to get impacted.
1: And so those are the things that are happening. That's normal course of business. It just feels like it's all going to happen here potentially at the wrong time, right? It's. I think we're setting up for a really rocky fall. And I think this whole idea that you need a recession to have a market lower is not—I've never understood that before. To your point, Germany's been in a recession now technically probably for three months, four months already on the look back on the two quarters. I'm not sure exactly— I know the stock market's not doing well there at all, but I would never let one lead me to the other because the recession's backward looking. If we're heading into a recession, or even a slowdown, the market's way too expensive. That's my take here, I love your thoughts
3: on that. So I'm gonna tie in, again, stock prices and, and how it can influence a recession. We have to remember that the two recessions pre-COVID were driven by a fall in asset prices. Tech stocks collapsed, it led to a collapse in capital spending. There you had a recession. Home prices fall. Everything else went down with it. It was a, it was a decline in inflated asset prices that drove those two recessions. Here we are. Whether we tip over or not into recession could be where asset prices go, particularly the stock market. Now that obviously then says, okay, what if the stock market doesn't fall? Do we avoid a recession? Maybe. But in this whole debate, does the economy feel different if we're growing at one percent, minus one, or no growth? Now. GDP this year has obviously been pretty good. There's no doubt about it. But I'm saying if we decelerate for reasons stated as we absorb more of this rising interest rate environment and it gets to more people, where we talk about how interest rates affect existing businesses and existing households, what about all the new business that doesn't happen because of the rise in interest rates? Multifamily starts are now rolling over because no project pencils out right now, unless you have a loan to value ratio less than 50%. Most real estate is 70% plus. So there's activity that's not happening because of the current interest rate environment, but that is to come. It's not captured in data now. That is to come. And lastly, to where with the market goes, we know what accelerates a bull market and what accelerates a bear market is the multiple. Earnings okay, go do this, but if the multiple goes up a lot, that exaggerates the the bull market and vice versa with the bear market. If this rise in rates just makes people think, you know what, Do I really want to pay 30 times for this thing? Earnings may still do what I think they will do. Is it still deserving of a 30 multiple? It's twofold, to your point. If it goes to 20, that's a 33% decline in that Companies
1: are facing higher rates, and the investors have a choice of where they want to be. So it's twofold there in terms of of that. If
0: I'm a farmer in the Midwest, which I've never been, by the way, and I have the utmost respect, they're able to grow their crops, and they worry about locusts, but typically they don't come for many, many So for many, many years, they're free of locusts. Locusts come, they eat all their crops and the farmers, I can't wait for these locusts to leave. When they leave, everything's to be okay. Then the locusts leave, they turn around, holy shit, our crops are decimated. There's still some, a lot of work to be done. What's my point? Investors, businesses, they didn't have to worry about the Federal Reserve. For years, the Fed finally came the Fed were the locusts. They came raised rates. Now the Fed is gone, effectively. They're done. Let's just say they're done. Not QT, but yes, please. But QT. there's a swath left behind. And that speaks to this lag effect that everybody seems to be talking about again. Now, I'm surprised it hasn't kicked in yet. But historically, this is about when it does in terms of time frame. And oh, by the way, it will coincide with what I believe will be a re-acceleration of a lot of the inflationary pressures I've been trying to fight for a while. That ain't good. Thoughts on that?
3: To your last point, that's what I expect is inflation volatility. There's one thing to see the deceleration in inflation. There's another thing to actually keep it down. And you're already seeing the setups for a reacceleration. I talked about multifamily. Now, there is a lot of multifamily supply to go through in the next 12 months. There is no doubt about it. That will suppress the inflation statistics. But in 12 to 18 months, There's going to be no new supply. And with the 7.5% mortgage rate, I believe that a lot of this new multifamily supply is going to get absorbed. So then you're going to get a reacceleration in rents. Look at transportation prices. They've literally collapsed. So it was Werner speaking at the Deutsche Bank Transportation Conference this week. And they talked about, so when everyone was buying goods during COVID, you had all you needed was a pulse to buy a truck and be in the trucking business. And wow, look at all the goods prices, tra- the trucking prices are through the roof. It cost $15,000 for a 40-foot container from Shanghai to LA. I wanna get into the trucking business. All those people are going out of business now that relied on spot rates which have collapsed. So Werner's saying, we're gonna have massive attrition. Look at yellows out of business. Transportation costs have bottomed. They are now gonna start reaccelerating. Now to what extent we'll have to see. But you already are planting the seeds for the next lift in inflation. Now I'm not saying it goes to 9%. I'm not saying it goes to 7%. But if inflation settles out at 3 to 4%, rates are going to stay high for a while. And I don't want to emphasize, CPI is split up into two parts, services and goods. The 20 years leading into COVID, Services inflation X energy averaged 2.8%. There was no such thing as transitory services inflation. What kept inflation within the 1 to 2% range was core goods prices averaged zero. And then you have the volatility of energy and food, but that's how mathematically you got to call it the one to two. Services inflation, let's just say it gets back to its long-term trend of call it three. All you need is goods prices to go up 2% a year. And this is a much different inflationary environment that we saw pre-COVID. Again, not seven, not eight, not nine, but enough that the days of the Fed cutting rates to zero. And all this queue, like those days are over. And I think that is one of the sort of realities that people are, are maybe now finally absorbing. And I'm sorry to be hyperbolic here because I throw this out, but- Welcome to the jungle. What what what, what led us into this? We had $18 trillion of negative yielding sovereign bonds. Central banks turned an asset into a liability. You can argue from a dollar perspective, it's the biggest bubble in the history of bubbles. It was epic. And now you're seeing this unwind. I tell people and friends of ours who are making a call on the, on the bond or the 10-year, so you got to buy it because inflation's slowing down and the US economy is slowing down. I'm like, yeah, you're you're right if it was if those were the only two reasons. But there's some major macro influences here. The Bank of England is selling gilts, the Bank of Canada is selling their bonds. There is a sea change in the sovereign bond market. I don't know where this goes. And when the 10-year was at 3.75, I was saying I can argue that it goes 3. You to mean 3 two weeks ago? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I was saying, I can argue that it goes to three because we're going to go into recession and my mo- inflation's moderating, but I can argue it goes to four and a half percent for not good reason. And then you had the BOJ and you have all this supply and you had the crappy 30 year and all of a sudden people are realizing, yeah, Rates can go up for not good reason, and the ECB QT is just beginning to accelerate in the back half of this year. So this unwind that we don't know where this goes, but it could be higher All in right, terms so of yields. So we started
1: out. We've been talking for weeks. You've been talking for weeks. You and I have spoken about it. Bank of Japan, and the reason I want to go back to it for a second. I've tried to explain it. It probably falls on deaf ears. You probably can do a better job. You have been pushing the long Japanese equity trade, which has been was spot on for a long for a period of time. I haven't. It's been a little bit choppy recently. But people need to understand the lack of control, the lack of yield curve control that's going on, and why it is so important in these markets. I wanna get your thoughts. And the setup to that is, I believe, every major crisis and sell-off in the markets for the most part has been caused by a fund blowing up or a margin call on something. Whether it would have been proven to be the right trade over a longer period of time, your leverage gets to X, your cost to borrow goes up, and the banks will call in your collateral. So we're reaching points now where I'm seeing a lot of volatility, but speak to Japan because it has been the place that has originated the carry trade. What is going on in Japan? I want you to hear your explanation of it because it's crucial.
3: You're right. They were essentially the author of Zero Rates and QE, modern-day QE that Bernanke then took from there, the baton, And they were the largest liquidity provider around the world via the carry trade and everything sort of was priced off that. And then all of a sudden, everything that the Bank of Japan has been begging for and higher inflation, and the fallacy of wanting higher inflation and saying, I want it to come with higher wages. If I have now 2% inflation, but 2% wage growth, my real wages are zero. If I had zero inflation and zero wage growth, my real wages are still zero. So finally, they got what they wanted. I think it was November last year, they tweaked yield curve control. And their debt, control. we know,
1: give the debt to GDP, which is crucial here. So right?
3: the thing that's interesting about the Bank of Japan is that they've reached limits. They've broken the JGB market. where days that the 10-year doesn't trade. If you are one of the largest...
1: For people out there, that's their bond market.
3: They're a creditor nation, but if you have a large debt pile and your bonds don't trade on a day, you've broken the market. So they've broken the market to the point where they are lending JGBs into the market and then buying them back. They're actually buying more than 100% technically of what's out there.
0: In trying to stabilize their bond market, that's what they're trying. So they're putting a tourniquet on the At situation. the expense of the yen. It's ex- and dollar right. and the yen continues to weaken. Dollar. We talked about this three weeks ago.
3: Please continue because this is important. The Bank of Japan started to have an issue when Kuroda was brought up to parliament and had to start explaining the rise in oil prices. Like that, that's the thing is the Bank of Japan wanted higher inflation, but the Japanese government started sending out checks to the people to deal with the higher cost of living. So that's when Kuroda's gig started to get called. Wow, maybe do we really want the inflation that he's rooting for? And then the yen starts to weaken. And then he starts to have a problem. Because... The, the Japanese import almost all of their energy needs. Before the recent pullback and, and rally, the the spike in, in in energy prices correlated with the weakness in the yen. You can draw a chart of crude oil and the yen, and they pretty much mimic each other. So then all of a sudden, crude had another big problem with the yen, and finally reached a point last November where he finally tweaked yield curve control, going from twenty five to fifty. And then now that you have inflation running double, and a new. By the way, he's gone now. Now you have Ueda. Now you have it. Now inflation running double. He had to say, all the other central banks are now doing something. I need to go along because if this inflation thing gets away from me, I need to try to do something. And now they're capping this grand experiment by finally joining the party that they started themselves. And between the Japanese people that say maybe JGBs are more attractive than treasuries, particularly after you price in the hedge and the basis swap, you have all the carry trades that may get unwound. But it's interesting the yen move because you have the BOJ move potentially spurring the rise in U.S. treasuries, 100%. But, then, but then the rise in U.S. treasuries is causing a rally in the dollar and weakness in the yen. So it's actually now a circular situation here.
2: So Peter, going back to what Danny mentioned is that almost every major market sell-off, at least in equities that we can recall in the last 25 years has started with some institution or some central bank, some sovereign or something, really getting themselves in a bit of trouble here. We had a little preview of that in March based on a lot of the policies that we just discussed here a little bit here. And, and I think ironically, and Danny, you started this conversation off with your boy Pavlov, okay? It's like the, the regional banks who did such a bad job with the kind of the match versus the the held to maturity, you, you think they would have figured it out. By, there were warnings about it too. So I'm wondering, do you think there is something lurking out there that makes what we went through in in March look like just an amuse boosh. okay? We talked about it I think on Fast Money, the day that you were on earlier in the week with us, we were talking about Bank of America's relative underperformance to some of the other money-centered banks, and and the people who've torn through their financials, and they think that there's some issues there, right? And with rates going higher now, if there was a deposit flight, if it continues, if the deposits are finding higher-yielding spots, why couldn't we have a redo of what happened with some of the regional banks with some of the larger money center banks?
3: It's a great question. And specifically the the mark to marks, which are now going to get worse, particularly for Bank America that has so much exposure there. So I'm more worried about rather than like viability issues for those banks than just another pullback in the pace of lending. And you're that loan officer. Right now, you're in cover your ass mode if you're a loan officer at a bank. You don't want to be the one that makes that bad loan in this kind of environment. And you look at commercial industrial loans. And they're essentially almost where they were last October. And they stopped going down. They've flatlined. So I'm not necessarily worried about big bl- blowups like that. What I'm worried about is the things that are not on the front page of the Wall Street Journal every day. It's the, the guy who is getting the, the call from the bank and saying, your loan's coming due. Stump up more equity. And, and that is happening every single day. And I hear it in the commercial real estate world and the well-capitalized ones that get by. But as you get into 2024, 2025, it starts to impact the bigger guys. The bigger guys have turned out their debt. It's in the coming years that they start to get impacted. They start to allocate more money to interest expense, less on stock buybacks and other expansion plans. So I'm worried about things that just continue to chip away rather than uh, a repeat of, call it March, or just another big 08 event.
1: These blow-ups we're talking about, yes, they're doing all those things, and yeah, you're seeing less lending, but not falling off a cliff type thing. When they're lending to market participants, we know this is trillions and trillions of dollars to hedge funds, right? To, we saw what Ghost did in a perfect market, right? What can happen? If that leverage gets turned down to the point of tapping on the shoulder, same thought process, hey guys, take your risk, your VAR, as we say, guy, take it down, one turn or two turns of that, by the way, for people out there that don't understand, it's the greatest business for Wall Street. They can print money by, and especially when rates go higher on the short side of things. When people short, they get to charge a higher rate. But if they just turn down from five times leverage that they're allowing to go to three, right, that has major implications. So if there is a markdown on an asset or there's crazy currency fluctuations or bond fluctuations that we've seen, we know there's damage going on. At what point does the tap on the shoulder, a la long-term capital, cause a ripple effect, which I believe is happening in real time. We saw it in Energy, this macro fund that got carried out a couple of weeks ago in the UK. That's the question I think Dan was trying to allude to. I think the answer is the same, but I think it's a thing that people won't see coming. The CNI stuff, they see monthly, the report.
3: So I'll tie this back into markets because we know CEOs respond to their stock price. If a company's stock price is down 30%, they start to retrench. They stop buying back stock, that's for sure. But if... Wall Street starts to delever. This gets back to, I don't feel like paying 30 times earnings for this stock. I'm only going to pay 20, and that's a markdown of 33%. If everyone starts to pull back in some way on the leverage side, it, it compounds on itself. And again, to get back to the stock price thing, it's you freeze up financing. You're already freezing up financing on the credit side. Imagine doing it on the equity side now.
0: Let's cross the Sea of Japan, go across Korea over the Yellow Sea and land in China, because that's become very interesting as well. We've been talking about it collectively. Market seems to be picking up on it. People say, how do you talk about inflation here? There's complete deflation in China, I get it. Seemingly their economy is melting down before our eyes. They're gonna stop announcing youth unemployment. They're having banks try to support the Yuan. But I tell you, and we talked about this, August of 2015, that one, the one devaluation caused ripples in the global markets for months. Same thing's happening. Nobody seems to care. Thoughts on how the importance of China here?
3: So I, I follow China very closely. I've always been fascinated with China. I've been there once. And putting aside the authoritarian part, which has a big impact, China is this incredible entrepreneurial culture. 30 years ago, if you went to China, everything was state-run. The restaurant you went to was state-owned. What that economy has done over the last 30 years, pulling so many people out of poverty, is a stunning accomplishment. And some of the biggest, greatest global companies were created in this entrepreneurial culture. So what's happening now is pretty disconcerting, How what's happened to the economy. And a lot of it is obviously because of how Xi has treated these people. But then now they're huge residential bubble has been exposed. But a lot of that bubble is on the developer side. In Shanghai, you can't buy a place in Shanghai without putting 30 to 40% down. So unlike 08, where you had a lot of buyers of homes that were all levered up, that they all collapsed, it's, it's the developers that are all essentially collapsing. The people that own homes, yeah, they're going to experience a decline in their net worth as the value of the apartments that they own decline in price. But the stress point is real on the developer side. The actual consumer or the person who owns real estate, savings rates are 30% there. They'll manage. And one thing the Chinese are not doing here is, and they're doing the right thing, they're not bailing out Country Garden. They didn't bail out Evergrande. They're saying, you guys took on too much debt, you're gonna, the the bondholders are gonna pay, as they should. So hold on a second. They're trying to cleanse. what you're saying is
0: a communist country is actually implementing capitalism, allowing, companies to fail, as opposed to a capitalist country, United States, we, yeah. where we, it's amazing, right? It's in, unbelievable what you're saying. It's, I'm
3: shocked. The interesting thing, the culture within China is while they're communist in name, they're against welfareism. That's why they haven't sent out checks to people. They don't want people to be dependent on the state, which is ironic considering they call themselves communist. Now, I have an optimistic spin on China. Not because of the government, not because of what's currently going on. And this is actually an optimistic spin in a lot of emerging markets. To me, the exciting, and I'm going to say something positive here, the exciting growth story in the world over the next 10 to 20 years is the growing middle class. China's middle class is still going to double in the next five to six years. India's middle class is one of the most exciting middle classes in the world. As these people get older, they get wealthier, they start to spend more. They want to live like just like the rest of us. So every day, the, the bashing of China, it's just non stop. And I get it, and I see what's going on, and they're manufacturing. They are a manufacturing powerhouse. Yes, there's diversification going on, and reshoring, they're bringing... Even China is actually building plants in Mexico to sell to the US. So while China it may not be Shanghai to LA port, it's going to be a Chinese company building a plant in Mexico that's going to then go to the LA port.
1: I got to so, I, I push back on this a little bit, because... They are doing things to stop. They're arresting people that are short selling. They're not letting people sell stocks. They're, yeah,
3: yeah, this stuff. Okay. I'm totally against. Hold it's, on, it's There's, and, and to say
1: real estate is their big. I mean, that's to your point. How do they get people up from poverty middle class is building these residential developments. Country Gardens one thing. Evergrande they're all over the place. There's this other one that came out today. I'm sure I'm going to butcher the name Zengzi. Okay. Yes, it's the okay. asset
3: manager. The Correct. wealth manager. Yes. So
1: now the middle class, upper class that's invested is now not getting payment on some of these high yield bonds in their portfolios. It does have ripple effects. Forget about. People's views about the politics they there. They am looking the streets. I, no, they won't allow. They're getting ahead of that well, now, too. But let's go back to they were coming out of COVID. They're going to be a huge driver. I agree with you over the longer, longer demographic, but people are very short-sighted right now. They're looking for something to hold their hat on. And I think it's fair to say for the next couple quarters, if not year, it's going to be tough to rely on China for this type of growth. I think to put it back in perspective, I think that's really what we're driving at
3: here, at least. A hundred percent. And it's that it freaks people out. And the Chinese stole PTSD from COVID. What they did was draconian. I mean, it was scary what they were doing in Shanghai. I mentioned Shanghai because that was the most metropolitan of cities where you just never would have imagined something like that would happen, where people were literally like nailed inside their apartment for three weeks. It was insane. So yes, this is going to last for could be a couple of years. Absolutely. There's, you cannot rely on them. But what has rebounded post-COVID is the restaurants now are more full, they're going to the movies, Macau numbers, and I follow Macau closely because we own a few of those stocks, those numbers have bounced back a lot. The Chinese tourist spent $250 billion in 2019 in international travel. We're not even close to that yet, but there is potential for a Chinese rebound dependent on the consumer, but they need to deal with these current challenges, no doubt.
0: Visit iConnections.io. Election cycle coming up. Historically interesting for markets. We're in August here. The election cycle started already clearly. Any importance to that here in the United States whatsoever through the lens of the stock market?
3: So I used to subscribe my friend, Jeff Hirsch, the Stock Traders' Almanac, and had every great seasonal tidbit. Sell in in May and all that stuff. And the election cycle, oh, year three of the election cycle, the market always goes up. They picked apart all four years of between the, of the market, what it does. And honestly, the Fed has taken control. Central banks have taken control. I stopped paying attention to any of these seasonal things. The election year, I think the market will do what it's going to do regardless. And I've thrown out all these seasonal influences because I just think they're relevant. The markets move on the ebb and flow of central bank activity. And that's it for a while. Yes, earnings go up, earnings go down, but it's the P multiple that the central bank so influence.
1: Can I ask one thing about that? Because normally, no matter what party wins, there's a pro and a con, people believe, but the, one of the pros is that, oh, if one of the party wins, we're going to get tax cuts. Given the fiscal situation in the United States that would normally cause a rally, let's say, in the market as a result of one party winning over the other or spending, those things a little bit like, feel like they're going to be handcuffed a bit on that. So
3: Yeah. And actually, to take that one step further, you wonder if the Republicans win, do they change like the IRA, for example. So you have these projects that are getting started. What happens if they start messing around with the tax incentives and say, you know, we're going to cut that off or, and start messing around with what's currently in place. That could have a direct impact on at least that part of, you know, the whole renewable spend that's going on.
1: I will tell you one thing that's coming back before the elections next year. Watch what happens to SALT. You think the $10,000 cap's not going to get lifted? You watch. That's an absolute guarantee with where rates are in the housing market starts to get felt anyway.
3: You're right. And I'm hearing the heat is it's coming, really like 100%. simmering now with that. So, Peter, as we mentioned the book report, you spent a lot of time
2: in the macro, and we have just spent a lot of time in the macro. We also just got done with Q2 earnings season. And one of the things that I enjoy the most, I think, because I think we all get macroed out a little bit, is when you, at, towards the end of earnings season, you'll highlight some stuff that you heard on some calls. You listen to dozens of calls, maybe more. I know you, uh, you sift through the transcripts. 75. Okay. So so explain real quickly to our listener, because Danny does the same, and he says this all the time. Okay, Guy and I don't always have as much time. A lot of times as the conference calls are going on, we're on the set of Fast Money and the like here. Why do you do it? When you look at the micro, it helps inform your macro view. And then also, will you pick out a couple of highlights? It could be one good one, one bad one of some things that I think you're going to look back on towards the end of the year and say, I heard this on a Q2 call from such and such, and it was really instructive.
3: I do it for selfish reasons in that we own a bunch of stocks, and I want to hear what the companies say. Now, obviously, some CEOs are glass half full, where I should say many of them are, some are not. So you take what they say sometimes with a grain of salt, but it's usually very informative. And then I took that just a step further. You just gain so much information on what is going on out there by listening to the people that live it every single day. And instead of waiting for an industrial production number that is already a month and a half old, I want to hear what companies, what they're experiencing right now. And a couple of trends just on the recent earnings call, and we can cut through some of the sectors. We mentioned transportation earlier. Let's talk about it again because the importance of transportation is every single thing that's made in this world ends up being transported. So what they have to say means a lot. And there were some companies that said I have zero visibility into next year. I just don't know. And then you have a couple of of, of companies that said I'm I'm seeing some bottoming in this whole inventory destocking. You look at Walmart, Target, their they, their inventory levels are much more in control and they've cycled through a lot of the destocking, so they're optimistic, but things haven't lifted yet. Things have stopped going down, but they haven't lifted yet. Then you look at travel and leisure. It's interesting, we talked about the bifurcated U.S. consumer. Well, that's actually happening in travel, too. The lower-end cons- consumer is not going to Europe. They're going to cruise, hotel, ships. cruise ships, or they're traveling within the state, for example. They're taking a family vacation, but they're not going overseas. It's the higher-end consumer that's spending overseas, which then ties into, okay, if the stock market does something, there'll be less people that are spending a lot of money going to Paris. You look at tech. Tech is still very interesting. The the smartphone business is shrinking. Qualcomm is a disaster. It's shrinking. Yeah, Everyone's looking for a bottom in the PC sector. Now, smartphones and PCs suck up the most amount of semiconductors. Those two. Everything else pales in comparison. PCs, obviously, uh, post-COVID, but there's been no rebound yet. Even data center, it's very mixed bag. You hear a lot about prioritizing spend, prioritizing spend. That means spending less that means trying to be more efficient. And it's really been just this the AI spend that's been the, really the only positive within tech, but that's somewhat niche right now, obviously.
2: Taiwan Semi told us, and they make chips for all sorts of end markets, that the demand for high-end graphics chips to be used for training these large language models or generative AI models is not basically absorbing the basically the weakness that they're seeing in these other end markets. We heard it from Texas Instruments. We heard it from a whole host of semiconductor companies that are not focused on those high-end graphics
3: here and i'm going to tie this into semis and what texas instrument said here is the sector we have to watch right now in at least in the industrial space it's autos because autos have been the strength over the last bunch of quarters we know that they needed to get inventory levels somewhat back to normal relative to pre-covid levels because of obviously the shortages and it was microchip getting to some. it was microchip that sells chips to the auto sector he said who said they're seeing the first glimpses of some softness and autos tie into so much. And if you now throw in a UAW strike, in addition to slowing production because inventory levels were are now normal, and then you wonder how much left can a consumer go paying 50 grand for a car and an 8% interest rate? Like how much left? There is there's a tipping point here. So to me, autos was the last man standing in industrial strength. And now we're seeing some signs that it may not last that much longer.
0: Which is going to make this NVIDIA quarter next week just get your popcorn ready. So Peter, indulge us for a second, because this is the point of the show, and you know this being an avid listener, where Danny gets a bit exercised. It's something that we call a rot, and Danny today wants to rot on, of all things, 13 Fs. F.
1: I said Fs. Yeah, Fs, right. So rip off the tape on this, because there was two newsworthy items that happened, and you need to actually use these to your advantage, whether you're long or short on some of these. So for people out there, if you're a professional money manager, meaning you manage someone else's money and it's north of $100 million, you are required quarterly with no more than a 45-day delay. So if your quarter ends June 30th by August 14th or whatever the 45th day is, you must file with the SEC what's called a 13F, which is only your longs. Okay, Now that could be long options, could be long stocks, whatever it is. So we know at some point between... April first and June thirtieth, you had this going on in your portfolio. What was your what was the flash on June thirtieth look like? So earlier in the week, when the Warren Buffett news came out about him buying, moving stuff around, that's fine. These guys, by the way, know when their 13F is coming out. They're well aware of that, right? That he had increased his stake in DHI, Doctor Horton, right, home builder. I turned, I walked in the office that morning. And go, Dan. Time to short the XHPs. I watch DHI. I'm like, people, you're looking at something that's stale. He may have sold the whole position. You absolutely have no idea what he's. He could own whatever up something against it. Like you don't know what it is. Okay, so that's that on DHI. So people, when you see this clickbait hit, all right, let's talk about Michael Burry, right? A co-inhabitant of the book The Big Short is that? Would that of uh, co-star? Co-star. Whatever. You were a star. Okay but we had never met before just so we're clear but and we met at the premiere and we email from time to time. So people see this hit the screen. People couldn't wait to write this, right? That he had long puts on the S&P SPY and the Qs. Now, he had 20,000 contracts at the time. We don't know the we don't know the strike. We don't know the expiration. We don't know anything. All I know is the way that the 13F is calculated so people out there understand on June 30th, whatever the price of the SPY was, which I believe was 443, and the price of the triple Qs, which was 369, and the fact that he had 20,000, and people in option land understand 20,000 equals 2 million, the right to purchase or short 2 million shares. The way the 13F works is they take 2 million and multiply it times whatever the price was on June 30th. So you're seeing numbers of 886 million of a spy short and 739 million of a Q short. So Michael Burry shorts 1.7 billion in the market, and people freak out. Now, I hope he did. I'm joking, but ah, my. you not joking. No, but my point is that's a long put that gets thrown in 13F. It could be a put spread. You won't see the other side. Well, right. he, he could he, have futures have no on idea. the other side. My point is, he could not be right. We don't it, even know what be, he spent it, it on it. It could be delta hedged. It could be a, a wall anyway, trade. Be, right. It the, could be a 200 strike in the spies that he spent. 50 cents on that it ended up costing a couple million bucks. My point is that people out there, please, and as Peter just mentioned, I love reading Q's and K's. It's my, one of my passions, right? But I like the one thing you didn't say on these conference calls, I don't listen to I read the transcripts because I can't listen to the lies that go on. The Q and A is the best part. If you get a company the Q and A tells you everything you need to know about what was just said because you'll have these analysts, Some, of course they all have buy ratings on it and they raise their targets and all that nonsense. But people, do yourself a service. It's actually interesting, to your point, Peter. And when you do it quarter to quarter, you'll have some type of relative match to do it. So anyway, that's all right on 13Fs. It's one of the things that's out there that people need to see. But just don't clickbait yourself.
0: I agree. We talk about it. We are tasked with talking about it in real time on our show, Fast Money, because they typically come out after the close into our show. And the Melissa will talk about 13Fs are out in this Past week, Warren Buffett announced a stake in DHI, Lennar, and NVR, and everybody got all geeked up. And you talked about it in real time, like that that could be a short term. And as it turns out, that's coming to fruition. So you got to see this, Peter, in real time. Danny Moses, although not as exercised as I've seen him, but quasi exercised, You know, when I feel
1: like I'm talking to the right crowd. of people. Oh, yeah, my people. Yeah, yeah so.
2: and make no mistake about it. Listening to conference calls and reading the transcripts and reading the Qs and the Ks is Danny Moses' kink there, people. All right, let's bring this full circle here, Peter, because I think a lot of our listeners know, Guy, Danny, myself, a lot of our views on the markets are fairly similar. You are a listener here. Talk to us a little bit about what you're thinking about the S&P 500 here. We had that breakout a few months ago, 43.50. That was the August 22 high. It went straight Above 4,600, a lot of that had to do with the excitement in and around AI. It really took off after NVIDIA had that guidance. And that's why Guy, when he just mentioned that August 23rd, the guidance that this company gives, literally the markets could be in the hands of that guidance, which is going to be really interesting. And the most interesting thing, and I I urge you guys to go listen to my conversation with Dan Niles from uh, OK Computer yesterday, he said to me, he agreed with that statement. He goes, but what if it's great and the stock sells off? Think about that, okay? Because who else is left to buy it? Maybe like Walmart. They just beat and guided up for the balance of the year, and the stock's down today. It was just making a new 52-week All all-time time high, high, right? Okay, so th- that's some sort of psychology I think is really important. So my question to you is: the S&P has pulled back a little more than four percent from those highs. It's back towards that breakout level here. We know that per fact set, we have an S&P trading 18 and a half times, which is above the five and 10-year average. Average of about 18 and a half or 18-ish and 17 and a half or so. What do you think for the S&P? You guys manage portfolios. You look at individual names. You think about the macro here. Where, and Danny makes this point all the time, if we were to be back at 3,900 in the S&P or we were to be at 3,600 near the October lows of last year, do you want to buy them there? Because what else is going on? So I'm curious how you're thinking about what the buy point is in the S&P 500. And also, I don't think we put our finger on it. Where do you think yields Fed funds? And where where do you think the 10-year top out here?
3: A couple things. We know that the pain point in 2022 was high inflation, aggressive Fed. Once inflation started to fall on a rate of change basis in the latter part of 2022, the Fed slowed down their pace of rate increases. That's all you needed for a nice tradable rally in the market, that AI accelerated come April, May. There are a couple of stocks that, are, that were very relevant in this last earnings season, the reaction to earnings. We started out with Tesla and Netflix they jammed those stocks right in to earnings, they came down hard when they reported okay numbers. And then the two biggest companies in the world, Microsoft and Apple, to me are the two most telling stocks because Microsoft being the poster boy for AI and Apple just the love affair that the whole world has with Apple and has for years, that took it to a multiple that was double its historical multiple when they actually had growth rates. Now they have no growth rates. So the the market reaction to those four stocks because of the size of the market caps, was telling that this rally is now over and it has to find a new catalyst. The new catalyst not being, okay, let's use the AI again. It has to be an acceleration of earnings. Now, is it possible to get an acceleration of earnings? Maybe, but these multiples leave you with no room for error. And now with interest rates on the back end rising, there's an economic problem with high interest rates, and there is a major multiple problem with high interest rates. Now, the short end of the curve, I'd be buying, and we do, we buy up to two-year T-bill notes and, and T-bills shorter than a year every single day for clients. And I'm just worried that this 10-year yield is going to surprise like it has to the upside so far and will continue to. And again, not for good reason. And and it will have to say that maybe some of this rally in the 10-year yield is because many people are saying, oh, we're not going to have a recession. I think it's less that because European yields are going up. The European economy is decelerating. Australia's yields went up today, or overnight, I should say, and they reported a decline in employment relative to expectations. So rates are rising again for not good reason, and that creates broader problems for banks that own these bills, for anybody that has debt coming due. And one last thing, rates staying higher for a while is its own continuous form of monetary tightening. So the Fed can stop here, and they will continue to tighten, and then you obviously throw in QT.
1: I'm really upset right now. Cause I'm more bearish than I was an hour and six minutes ago when we ah, started. Ah, ah, I, I start every show with, Fine. so give us a look. So you don't, you're you not a buyer of the S&P. You're a buyer of short-term treasuries, and you're nowhere because you don't know what to pick on the long end of the curve, and Fed funds have probably peaked. Is there, are all those things accurate?
3: So I, I, we always have to balance because we are wealth management firm, like clients in a way have to own something, some, the growth stuff. Okay. So it's like, how do we, how do we mitigate that? Right. Okay. So when we have new money that comes in for clients, okay. we are so- not excited about buying growthy stuff. We are saying, you know what? Patience. We do not have to buy stock. I want to be buying stocks when they go down. I don't want to be chasing stocks when they go up. Because when you think about the financial advisory world, there's this robotic, systematic, dollar-cost averaging. I put money in the market every single month. And that forces you to buy when things get more expensive. And then, of course, when things fall, people get nervous. "Ah, Maybe I'll put off at a month. And we've tried to make a point is on the downdrafts buy and just please don't fear the rallies because you're not going to be missing out here.
1: This has been... My fear, my point I've made in the markets is that when a market like this and some of those growthy names that are trading at historically high valuations start selling off, there is no buy point anywhere near where they are because no one stands in, oh, that's the place you want it. 32 times earnings or 18 times sales makes sense. It was just 30 times sales. That's the part. And when you start to see the wealth destruction and the retail side, forget about professional AMC and all these things, it's over. That's done. Like You can see when those things crack, once they break, they're over. I'm, the stocks don't come back. So that gives you a glimpse, I think, what's going to happen. So more importantly, you're right, being constructive on those things, but understanding that, do I buy it now? Not yet. Not yet. I was watching guys' faces you were talking, guys taking it all in, whether you're going to trade on it or not. What's interesting is, I find
0: myself each day walking through a desert and reading Peter's work. It's like a canteen that you find on your way, but you can only get a couple of sips, but Spending an hour with him is like finding the oasis in that desert, and it creates nourishment for me. It reinforces some of the things, not some of the things, all the things that we've all thought, I think, collectively for quite some time. Peter Bukvar, it has been an absolute pleasure having you here on On the Tape. Thank you so much.
3: I had a blast. Like I said earlier, I was really looking forward to this, and it really made me happy today.
1: We'll come back here and uh, say, but before the end of the year, maybe we'll get you back on because I think there'll be a lot more to talk about.
3: 100%. Would love to. Thanks.
0: Thanks again to our presenting sponsors, CME Group, iConnections and FactSet.